In one of our previous congregations, a man confronted me after the service about something I had said. In using a personal illustration, I described uh, a serious mistake I had made some time earlier. He didn't appreciate me sharing that piece of information. So he said to me, don't ever do that. And I said, don't do what? He said, don't ever do that. You cannot let people see the cracks in your armor. Translated as, don't let people see your failures and flaws. I disagreed. And I said, listen, I'm human. I'm human. And if people don't see that humanness in me, then people can be tempted to put me on a pedestal. And... uh, No one survives a pedestal. I don't want to be put on a pedestal because people on pedestals fall off. And trust me, uh, if someone puts me on a pedestal, it's inevitable. I'm going to do something regretful and or shameful at some point and fall off that pedestal. And falling off that pedestal can create disillusionment. And devastate the person that put me on that pedestal. So I said, I'm going to be discreet, but I will continue to be transparent and expose my humanness, and I still do. Let me mention three reasons we should admit to our humanness, and all that humanness includes, such as our limitations, our inadequacies, our failures, our frailties, and even our sins. Reason one is that to discount our humanness is to send a false message to people around us. To ignore, to discount our humanness is to send a false message to those around us. That false message is that we have gotten our act together. And that message isn't true because none of us have it all together. Galatians 6 and verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I might add, he deceives himself and he also deceives others. Question, do we think more of ourselves than what God knows us to be? Do we have an inflated perspective on our gifts and abilities? Do we seek to create a better impression of ourselves than is actually true? Do we have to look good at all costs, even if it means we have to exaggerate or deceive in order to do that? I heard about a pastor. He and his wife were eating lunch after the Sunday services, and uh, he said to his wife, I'm curious, so how many outstanding preachers do you think are out there? Then he proceeded to just sit back and wait for some reassuring answer. She said, I don't actually know how many there are, but probably one less than you think there are. (laughs) She frustrated his attempt to deceive himself and send a false message to others. Christian, we need to be careful about what we communicate about ourselves. For me to refuse to disclose my humanness and weaknesses and frailties and limitations for me to not admit I made a mistake and to never acknowledge my struggles and sins for me to wear this facade of near perfection 
would be deceitful to this congregation, and I cannot in good conscience do that. Some months ago, I apologized from this pulpit because I had made a serious, unintentional mistake. I had misrepresented an entire Protestant denomination. And it was an embarrassing moment to admit to that, but I had to do that. Reason two is that our humanness can be one of our greatest assets. Our humanness, and all that includes, can be one of our greatest assets. The reason humanness can be an asset to us is because our limited humanness makes us prime candidates to be used of God. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26, is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament because I see me in these verses. Paul mentions here five categories of people that God wants to use most. Each of these five categories represent the different limitations that humanness brings. The first category is God wants to use those who are less than intellectual. God wants to use those who are less than intellectual. Verse 26 from 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. This word foolish is derived from the Greek word moros, M-O-R-O-S. And moros is related to the modern word moron. Moron. That word moros literally means a non-intelligent person. It describes ignorant people, someone uneducated. It describes dummies, per se. There was an organization called Mensa, M-E-N-S-A. Mensa has a membership that consists only of geniuses. That organization was formed in 1946 after two men met on a train in England and discussed the possibility of locating highly intelligent people and bringing them together. Those two men became friends and formed the Mensa Society. The word Mensa is a Latin word for table. Mensa means table. The idea being that Mensa is a round table society where all the members are considered equals. To be eligible for membership in Mensa, someone's intelligence quotient must rank them in the top 2% of the general population. Now, I did not know this. There is no standardized IQ test. But that top 2% um, most often means someone has an IQ in the 140s and above. Now, I, I need to admit this. Just for the record, I am not a card-carrying member of Mensa. I, I know it's a shock to some of you, but, I, but I'm not. I'm not. I've never been mistaken for the village wise man. Uh, there are some smart people in this congregation, and I'm not one of them. Now, don't misunderstand this. God can use a Mensa member, since God can use anyone that wants to be used. There are numbers of intellectuals uh, that are being used in Christian apologetics, in higher education, 
and intelligent people God is using in other disciplines and other professions. But this passage seems to teach that God is also anxious to use people of lesser intelligence. The reason he wants to do that is because people who are of average intelligence or less are more aware of their human limitations and because of that are more dependent on God. And God wants us to trust Him for our wisdom. In the 1800s, when God wanted to find someone to bring about a spiritual awakening in this nation, He didn't search for that someone from Princeton Seminary. Princeton, a conservative graduate school, theological graduate school at that time, it is not now. God didn't inquire about that someone from the prestigious Union Theological Seminary, another conservative theological graduate school at that time. It is not now. Instead, God went to a shoe shop in Boston and found a teenage shoe clerk named Dwight Moody. On Saturday, April 21, 1855, a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball burst into that store and found Dwight wrapping shoes. In just a matter of minutes, he prayed with him to receive Jesus. According to modern standards, Dwight Moody would be considered a non-intellectual. He had only a seventh grade education. And as an evangelist, he used terrible grammar in his preaching. He pronounced Chicago, Chicago. He pronounced the word Mesopotamia in just one syllable. I have no idea what that sounded like. <laughs> and unsure of his spiritual perception, it was a full year after his conversion before his church would admit him into membership. But all that made Dwight Lyman Moody a perfect candidate to be used of God. From the time of his salvation experience until his life ended at age 62, it is said Dwight Moody, and this is amazing, personally, one-on-one, -on -one, led 70,000 people to Christ. And then in addition to that, it is estimated that altogether he had more than one million converts in his public crusades. Then before his death, he founded one of the finest institutions of higher learning and evangelicalism, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. One of his critics said about Mr. Moody, does Moody think he has a monopoly on God? This friend of the evangelist responded to that accusation and said, no, 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 no. Moody thinks God has a monopoly on him. And that's the reason God used him. Second category is God wants to use those who are weak. Those who are weak. Verse 27 continues. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Leadership expert and author now deceased Fred Smith said God sometimes gives some of his greatest gifts to some of his weakest children. One example of that is David Ring. Probably an unfamiliar name to most of us. David is one of the most sought-after evangelists in the United States. Piece of trivia, David Ring graduated from the same high school I did. But after I did. Not long after I did. 
David has cerebral palsy. And as a result of that genetic disorder, his gestures are spastic. He has to strain in order to be able to articulate his speech. And even then, he's sometimes difficult to understand. David has a classic response to those people like some of us who just play at this game of Christianity. His face is distorted and twisted, and he presents this question. I have cerebral palsy, so what's your problem? I want us to see a short clip of David. Uh, This is difficult to understand in parts, so there's subtitles uh, to help us understand. I might add, I've listened to his sermons. He's easier to understand uh, as he's preaching. I have spoken to him on the phone. It was difficult to understand, but I got most of it. Watch this. One night, I went to church. I didn't want to go to church. I've been to church, but God don't love me. If God love me, why God take away my mama? If God love me, why God pick on me? God don't even like me. But that night, I sat down in a church. Then I found out. One thing I found out that God does love me. And I had a wonderful blame of my life. I found out that I'm not okay, but that's okay. God loves me just the way I am. And that night I, I came and I gave my life to the Lord. I went back to school after that night. The student body that called me every name other than my own, a public school, they were so dumbfounded. They had to call together a large good assembly to find out what changed my life. And I said, student body, I. I'm not the same anymore. I've been changed. I gave my life to God. I'm, I don't want to die anymore. I want to live. Why? Because I got something worth living for. They voted me to be the most popular boy in that student body. I became popular where I gave my life to God. God called me to go all over the United States telling my story. They tell me I, I, will, never be, I will never be a preacher. They say you won't ever make it. But I only been doing it 37 years. They said, nobody will invite you to their church, uh, but I have spoken in over 6,000 churches. We throw away broken things, but God don't. God used broken things. 
Did you catch the line at the end of that clip? David said, we throw away broken things, but God don't. God uses broken things, and God does. And David Ring is an example of that. In the minds of some people, his weakened condition is considered a handicap. David considers it a blessing. And he continues to preach across this nation to more than 100,000 people on an annual basis. And he makes an internal difference in each of them because God uses people that are weak. A third category, God wants to use those who are insignificant. Insignificant. Verse 28, and the base things of the world God has chosen. The word base from base things of the world means low in stature, ignoble, of low degree, and insignificant. Insignificant is an appropriate synonym. One prime example of someone insignificant would be the Old Testament character Gideon. Gideon was the smallest member from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe, from one of the smallest nations on this earth. But God used Gideon and his 300 courageous men to defeat 135,000 Midianites. One afternoon in St. Louis, an attorney met a man in order to conduct some continuing business. The two of them have been doing business together for some time. This man was a Christian. So before the two men concluded their discussion, this client said to this attorney, he said, I have wanted to ask you a question, and, but I, I've been afraid to do that. This attorney replied, don't be afraid. What is it that you want to know? He said, I'm curious as to the reason you're not a Christian. That is a unique introduction to a spiritual conversation. I've never used that line before. I'm curious as to the reason you're not a Christian. This attorney hung his head and said, I know enough about the Bible to know that it says no drunkard can enter the kingdom of heaven, and that's my weakness. This client said, sir, you're avoiding the question. Why aren't you a Christian? He said, because I can't remember anyone explaining to me how to become a Christian. This businessman reached into his briefcase, pulled out a Bible. He opened the Bible, read some scripture, and presented this man the gospel. He presented to him how to become a Christian. He then invited this attorney to pray and receive Jesus. This man prayed this particular prayer. He said, oh Jesus, I am a slave to alcohol. One of your servants has just showed me how to be saved. Oh God, forgive my sins and help me overcome this terrible habit. He committed himself to Jesus Christ at that exact moment. His name might sound familiar to some of us. His name was C.I. Schofield. And he edited the most popular study Bible in the 20th century, the Schofield Reference Bible. It was the only Bible I used until my mid-20s. Question, so who was that business client? that was courageous enough to challenge Mr. Schofield to become a Christian. He was so insignificant that literally no one knows his name. But God used him. Because those are the people God uses. 
A fourth category is God wants to use those who are despised. Those who are despised. Verse 28 continues, And the things which are despised God has chosen. The word despised means contemptible, worthless, and scorned. If we investigated the backgrounds of the different men and women God has used throughout the church age, we would discover that most of them weren't members of who's who, but most often were members of who's not, because God wants to use the despised, those that are scorned, those that are outcast. Louis Palau died in 2021. I had the pleasure and privilege of hearing him preach in person in Dallas not long before his passing. He was a famous evangelist, especially famous in South America. He's, he was called the Billy Graham of South America. In one of his books, he tells about a societal outcast, a woman who was scorned named Rosario. Rosario had actually been a terrorist. She was said to be a brute of a woman who was an expert in different martial arts. In fact, during her time as a terrorist, she had murdered at least a dozen men. We aren't sure why I, she had been released from prison, but she was. At the time, Evangelist Palau conducted a crusade in Lima, Peru. And Rosario heard about that crusade and being incensed at the Christian faith, she decided to attend one of the services and actually attempt to assassinate the evangelist. Once inside the stadium, uh, thousands and thousands of people were gathered there as she contemplated how to get close enough to the platform to kill him. She began to listen to his message. He was preaching on hell. And the Holy Spirit began to touch her heart. She fell under deep conviction. And at the end of that message, she received Jesus and she was saved. Ten years after that crusade, Louis Palau met Rosario for the first time. He learned that during that decade, after her conversion, she had assisted in planting five churches. She was an active member in one of those congregations. And this former terrorist founded an orphanage that during that time had housed more than 1,000 children. That's because God wants to use those that are despised, those that are scorned, and those that are considered outcast. A fifth category, God wants to use those that are nobodies. Nobodies. Verse 28 continues, And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The things which are not is a reference to people who are shunned and overlooked. Overlooked those that are ignored. One classic biblical example of that would be from, would be the Old Testament character David. No one in his high school graduating class would have voted David most likely to succeed at something because he was basically ignored. He was overlooked. He was one of those nobodies. I want us to notice 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1, this is how God selected David. Now the Lord said to Samuel, remember Samuel was one of the most famous Old Testament prophets. God said to him, how long will you mourn for Saul, 
seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. The prophet Samuel had been instructed to go to Bethlehem and anoint, literally anoint with oil, anoint a successor to Saul who had disqualified himself as the first king of ancient Israel. God wanted to replace Saul. And this God-appointed successor was supposed to be one of Jesse's eight sons. Notice what happened, starting in verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. I wish more people would buy into that. Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Verse 5, and he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> so it was when they came that he, Samuel, looked at Eliabib and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Jesse's first son, Eliabib, came out, and Samuel thought to himself, this is the one. This has to be the one. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, no, 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 no. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. This next line is great. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Meaning God doesn't evaluate a book according to its cover, but according to its contents. And even though Eliab, Eliabib uh, had an outward appearance that was acceptable and uh, striking probably in some sense, God said no. No, it's more than the outside, it's the inside. He's not the one. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadad, this is his second son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he, Samuel, said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, then Jesse made Shammah, this is Jesse's third son, pass by. And he, Samuel, said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. None of them were acceptable as a successor to Saul. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Meaning, are, are all the sons here? Is there someone left? Then he said, this is Jesse, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Verse 12, so we sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Ruddy means a reddish color. His countenance, his face was reddish in color with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose 
and went to Ramah. Throughout this process of finding Israel's next king, David had been overlooked. He had been ignored. Notice that his father Jesse felt that each one of David's seven brothers would have been a better candidate to succeed Saul than David. His attitude toward Samuel was, oh, I, I almost forgot about David. I have one more son, but I'm sure he's not the one. He couldn't possibly be the next king. He's just a teenager out there in the field herding sheep. David was one of those nobodies. But God used David to become ancient Israel's second king and more important, establish a prophetic throne over Israel that Jesus himself as the promised Messiah is going to sit on and reign from during the millennial kingdom. Sometimes it's actually an advantage being one of those nobodies. I read about a senior in college and it was finals week. That meant it was his last week on campus, and he was excited about that. He went into this one large class. He attended. There were more than 400 students in this class. He sat down for the final exam. This particular professor who gave the exam was about to retire, and he cared more about keeping his class rules than teaching his students. He gave a speech before each final exam. He said, I'm going to ring this bell in a minute. And as soon as I ring this bell, you can turn your test papers over and begin marking all the answers on your test. Then, when I ring the bell at the end of the class, turn your papers over and stop writing. File forward and stack your papers in a nice, neat stack on the desk. He rang the bell and moans and groans were heard from the students after he'd given his little speech. Each of them frantically started marking their papers. And after 50 minutes, according to his stopwatch, he rang the bell the second time. There were another series of moans and groans because most of the students didn't get all the questions on the paper answered, much less get them right. But one after another, those students started filing forward and stacked their test papers in a big stack on his desk. But this particular student I mentioned earlier, this graduate student, when about to graduate, didn't come forward. Instead, he remained in his seat and he just continued working on his test. Um, in spite of the professor's earlier instructions. He just sat there and continued working. The professor noticed that the whole room was now empty except for the student. He started to get irritated because the student just continued working. Ten minutes passed and then fifteen minutes passed and then this student slandered up to the professor's desk and he held his test paper in his hand. And the professor frustrated said, did you hear that little speech I made before this test? This graduating senior said, yes, I did. It was a nice speech. Did you hear the bell I rang? The senior said, I did. I definitely heard the bell. By that time, this professor was so frustrated that he leaned forward and said, son, I want an explanation because you worked an extra 15 minutes on this test and I want an explanation right now. The student leaned into the face of the professor and said, sir, do you know who I am? 
This professor said, no, I don't. I literally have no idea who you are. This student said, good. And then he jammed his test paper into the middle of the stack and ran out the room. <clears throat> the moral is that sometimes it's a good thing to be one of these nobodies. And another and better reason is because nobodies are the ones God wants most to use. There's no question the most famous evangelist in modern times was Dr. Billy Graham. And Hopi and I were so privileged 14 months ago to visit the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. We visited the library. It was phenomenal and then went to his gravesite. Billy himself started out his preaching career as one of these nobodies. In 1938, he was engaged to be married to a woman named Emily Cavanaugh. Emily Cavanaugh. And she broke off that engagement. She broke off that potential marriage because she said, quote, she wanted to be married to a man that was going to amount to something and she didn't think Billy could do that. <laughs> dumb, 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 dumb girl. Remember, God operates according to a paradox. According to human thinking, strength is strength. Weakness is weakness. Intelligence is intelligence. And foolishness is foolishness. But according to God's thinking, some of what seems to be the strongest things are the weakest. Some of what seems to be the weakest things are the strongest. And some of what seems to be intelligence is foolishness. And what seems to be foolishness is sometimes intelligence. God's not searching for Phi Beta Kappas. Phi Beta Kappa was founded in 1776 and is the oldest and most prestigious academic honor society in this nation. 17 U.S. presidents, 40 Supreme Court justices, 136 Nobel laureates have been members of Phi Beta Kappa. God doesn't need the best and the brightest for him to use. God doesn't need multimillionaires and billionaires and famous athletes and celebrities and entertainers and Miss Americas. God's in the market for ordinary people. Someone once said to me, wouldn't it be fantastic if Madonna became a Christian? My response was, it it's fantastic if anyone becomes a Christian. And yes, it would be fantastic if Madonna became a Christian because Madonna has contributed so much to the moral downgrade in this nation. One religious leader, a rabbi, said, how tragic that 60 years after feminism rightly demanded that women cease being treated as the lecherous man's plaything, and instead be accorded the dignity of an equally intelligent and dignified member of society, Madonna has been allowed to undo so much of that progress. She has continued to degrade women. They're stimulating sexual acts at musical concerts, portray full nudity in movies, and perform lesbian kisses on television for the sake of ratings. Understand something, people. Madonna, Madonna still needs Jesus, but Jesus doesn't need Madonna. God doesn't need celebrities. God doesn't 
needs superstars. According to this text we just read, God needs people who are foolish and weak and base and despised and are not. There's a specific reason those above mentioned individuals are the prime prospects God wants to use. And that reason is found starting in verse 29. That no flesh, meaning no human flesh, no human being should glory in his presence. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He who glories, let him glory, not in himself, not in his own abilities, not in his own intelligence, not in his own education and experiences. Let him glory in the Lord. The reason God most wants to use the different categories of people we just mentioned is because these people understand and admit their humanness and inadequacies and limitations and frailties and weaknesses and are more apt to glorify God and give him the most credit. Reason number three. God is able to turn our humanness into blessings. God is able to turn our humanness and all that includes into blessings. 2 Corinthians 12, this is probably familiar to some of us, starting at verse 7. The famous apostle Paul said this, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul authored 13 of them. Paul authored 13 New Testament books, more than twice the number of any other biblical author. The revelations he mentions here is a reference to those different New Testament books he wrote because the contents of each book he wrote, were revealed to him from God. Since God used him to write so much scripture, there would be this temptation for him to become full of pride and to have a higher opinion of himself than he should. So in order that he might remain humble, God permitted him to have what was called a thorn in the flesh. We aren't sure what this thorn was. There are two common suggestions. One, this was an actual illness. This thorn was an actual illness, such as malaria, epilepsy, gout, an intestinal disorder, or a speech impediment. Some of those have been suggested. The most common ailment mentioned as a suggestion as to what this thorn is, is an eye disease, a, a, a painful eye disease resulting in gradual blindness called ophthalmia. That's probably the most common suggestion. And there is some biblical evidence to support that idea. Second suggestion, this thorn was a demonic messenger from Satan sent to torment him. A messenger from Satan, demonic inspired, sent to torment Paul. These demonic messengers were some problem people in the Corinthian church that were against Paul and were stirring up trouble. And there is some biblical evidence to support that suggestion. We don't know exactly what this thorn was. 
But we do know it was serious. Some would argue that the Greek word translated here as thorn could better be translated as stake. A stake. If so, if that's the better rendering of this word, then this problem Paul experienced resembled a large stake used to impale someone rather than just a small thorn used to irritate someone. That describes the intensity of the suffering this thing, this thorn, had caused Paul. Verse 8, concerning this thing, meaning concerning this thorn, I, Paul, pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Three different times, Paul asked God to remove this thorn, remove this problem. And God responded, no, Paul, no. I'm not going to take this thorn away, but I am going to give you enough grace to endure it. Verse 9, and he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, meaning made complete, in weakness. God's strength shows up best in our human weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Infirmities are weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. Notice, Paul said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Someone said where we're strong, there's a tendency to depend on ourselves. And where we're weak, there's a realization we need to depend on God. This is the reason Paul was able to boast in the fact he was weak. Because in his weakened state, he was utterly dependent on God for his strength. Some of you know I, well, I appreciate sports, period. Um, I appreciate the strength sports. Um, I mean, from CrossFit to powerlifting to Olympic lifting and uh, strongman competition, all of that. Um, there was an elite powerlifter, a coach, and gym owner who will remain anonymous as it isn't my intention to embarrass him. He's not a Christian, that is apparent. And we shouldn't expect a non-Christian to think like a Christian until he is a Christian. And so I, I, I won't mention his name. He has produced tons of training videos uh, on YouTube. And, and his videos are helpful. I mean, he's a skilled technician in the different movements. He's a nutritionist. And uh, he's, he has remarkable experience. And his videos have much, much helpful information. But his closing remarks on each video posted to social media shocked me the first time I heard them. His closing tagline is this, Remember, strength is never a weakness, and weakness is never a strength. Strength is never a weakness, and weakness is never a strength. The first time I heard that, I go, no, 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 no. That's not correct. On the surface, that sounds good, but it's a counter-biblical statement. Because the second part contradicts verse 10, where Paul said, For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's strength shows up best in our weakness, so it is not true that weakness is never a strength. 
The amount of God's power that is manifest in me is in direct proportion to how willing I am to admit to human weaknesses, admit to human struggles, both in private and in public. Instead of posturing ourselves as someone who is self-sufficient and invincible and has all the answers, instead of that, we need to acknowledge our humanness and start depending on God for our strength. Understand, God doesn't want us to do something for Him as much as He wants to do something through us. Because when God is operative in and through us, then He is the one who gets all the credit for what happens and not us. In conclusion, probably no one in this room recognizes the name Charles Lawrence. Charles Lawrence was the man most responsible for developing the engine for the famous plane, the Spirit of St. Louis. This is that plane, a smaller plane than I imagined it to be. That was the aircraft Charles Lindbergh flew nonstop from Long Island, New York to Paris in 1927. It seems that after the record-setting flight, friends of Lawrence held a dinner in his honor of his achievement. At that dinner, in response to all the attention he had received, he stood up and made this observation. He said, this is so nice. This is so nice this evening. And I appreciate it very, very much. But who ever heard of Paul Revere's horse? What did he mean? Who ever heard of Paul Revere's horse? In grade school, we read a poem from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Paul Revere's famous midnight ride transpired on April 18, 1775, but literally no one knows the name of that horse he rode on that famous ride. Someone has suggested it was named Brown Beauty, but no one knows. That's conjecture. And most people don't even know that Paul Revere didn't own a horse. He borrowed that horse from a friend named John Larkin. Mr. Larkin was a deacon from the Old North Church in Charleston, Massachusetts. That anonymous horse had a significant part in that famous midnight ride, but it was Mr. Revere that we remember most. In using that phrase, Charles Lawrence understood that his role in that famous transatlantic flight was minor. He had functioned only to help provide Mr. Lindbergh a usable vehicle. The real achievement was Lindbergh's. The point is that if we are able to do something that has eternal value, if we're able to teach a, a biblical lesson, if we're able to lead someone to Christ, if we're able to disciple someone, a new convert, for example, if we're able to volunteer in a children's class, if we're encouraging someone in the hospital or bringing someone a meal or writing a check to someone in great need or going on a short-term missions trip or conducting ourselves as a Christian should in a public place and on and on and on. But if we are able to do something that matters to God, then all we have done is to provide Him with a usable vehicle because the actual achievement is His. Let's bow our heads.
Father, I think we've learned today that you can use any and all of us no matter what our state is in life, no matter our life experiences, no matter our educational achievements, no matter our intelligence prowess, no matter what other gifts and abilities we might have, or if we kind of feel left out, it doesn't matter. You want to use us if we would just be willing to be used. And for those of us who really don't have all that much, it's exciting to know that you do want to use us because when you do, when you do something significant through us, then it is so apparent it's not us, but it's you that did it. All we did was provide for you a usable vehicle. So God, I pray that this message will have an impact in our thinking, an impact in our hearts. Use it, I pray, to make a difference in each of us. And I thank you, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.